Well, good morning, everybody. It's, re- it's really good to be here. It's, it's going to be good to get into the scriptures together today. Uh, I'm excited about this passage. I think the Holy Spirit has some things to say to us. As you can see, uh, I'm continuing on in Mark's series on the Sermon on the Mount. And <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48. But you know, a- as I was preparing this teaching... I realized as I was going through that, you know, this really touches on what the Holy Spirit is showing the elder team as the vision for Grace Church going forward. And so I thought before I started getting into the teaching, I would just mention that and let you know what our thinking is so that you can, and then you'll see how the scripture uh, sort of undergirds that. So what is our vision going forward as a body? There's a lot of changes that are happening right now. Where are we going? Well, the interesting thing is is that the Holy Spirit has been clearly showing us step by step. It isn't something that we've been trying to sort of figure out or sit down and come up with a slogan to put on the wall. What's happened, uh, it started really probably seven years ago where the elder team began to be trained in what's called presence-based leadership, which is learning, instead of conducting our sessions like more like a business meeting where you pray before and you pray after and you conduct your business, where we are learning to try to actively acknowledge the presence of Jesus in our midst and listen to the Spirit together. So that's been going on for quite some time. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds. We're not great at it, but we're getting better at listening. Uh, Listening is hard for some of us. And so then, uh, uh, fast forward a couple more years, probably 2018, we had a, a, a leadership seminar with Frank and Jessica Hain. Some of you remember them. They've moved out of state. But, you know, wonderful people. They have sort of a leadership consulting business, and they helped us a lot. We were there with them for two days. At the end of the second day, here was the question that was asked to the elder team. <clears throat> what do you think is the number one desire for the Holy Spirit at Grace? Ooh. That's a really good question. What is the number one desire for the Holy Spirit to accomplish in our midst? Well, we had three groups. We prayed about this. We got together. And then at the end, Frank and Jessica put the results up on the whiteboard. And and guess what? It was the same. Think of all the possible answers to that question. It was the same across the board. And do you know what it was? It was about you. It was about you all. And that is our sense of what the Holy Spirit wants to do is to release and mobilize and fulfill all the potential that God has put in you while you are on this planet to be everything that the Father wants you to be. That's what this is about. That's what we're doing. And that's where we're going. And so we're kind of astonished at this happening, right? Well, then the thing is, okay, what do we do about that? Well, we didn't exactly know. Fast forward another couple years, we get contacted by Brian and Kirsten. They said, you know, we knew the leadership was change was coming. Mark and Kathy were retiring. They said, hey, we know that when you guys talked to us a couple years ago, we said a firm no. 
were not interested in being considered for that leadership role. But you know, the Holy Spirit has been working on us. And we realize we need to change our mind on this and be open. And you know what? We're actually getting excited about talking about that possibility. So anyway, that evolved to where Brian and Kirsten are going to be the successors for Mark and Kathy. But do you know what? If you know them, you, I don't have to tell you this. Do you know what their number one gift is as a couple above everything else? They have this ability to identify, mobilize, and release gifting, to help people fulfill their potential, to help people understand how God made them and, and deploy that and plug that in. Isn't that incredible? That's the Holy Spirit. That's not us. That's the Spirit of God, step by step, showing us what He wants to do here. And so the message today, you know, I've titled this, The Capacity to Bless. And um, that's what God wants to do, is to increase as individuals and as a body our capacity to bless other people. So let's get into the scriptures and see how this ties together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. You know, when I was nine or ten years old, I, I really loved the trumpet for some reason. And I wanted to play the trumpet. And so my mom and dad were kind enough to get me an old trumpet. And there was a guy in our town who was taught at the local music store, but he was like a really serious trumpet player. He had played for President Kennedy. That's how good he was. And he gave lessons. Well, looking back on this, I realized, okay, some people are naturally good at something, but they don't know how to teach other people. Because I'd be there trying to play and womp, 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 and it's not sounding good at all. And he'd say, just make it sound like this. And he'd play this beautiful, and, and uh, romp, romp. And finally, he's getting frustrated with me. He's like, just, just blow through the thing, would you? And I'm like, I'm blowing, I'm blowing. You know, I couldn't get it. I wasn't talented at it. And, you know, it's easy to think that this is what's happening in this passage, right? Jesus, the Son of God... He's telling us, hey, it's simple. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and by the way, be perfect, as your Heavenly Father's perfect. And we're, wah, 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 you know. I can't do that. But that's not what's going on here. We need to dig a little deep, deeper into this passage, so let's do that. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, you can see in all caps there, you shall love your neighbor. That's a quote from Leviticus 19.18. That's in the Old Testament. But wait a minute. The second part, 
hate your enemy, where's that? That's not in all caps. Where did that come from? Why did Jesus even say that? That's not in the Old Testament. Well, the most likely answer is that this was a tradition that had been added onto the text. That was a common saying in Jesus' day. Oh, you shall love your enemy, I mean, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, it's, how did that come about? Well, it's kind of easy to, say, to see how that came about if you think about the history of the nation, the Jewish nation. At Jesus, in Jesus' day, for 600 years, they had been occupied by other powers. So the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and now it was the Romans. So they're under foreign rule for 600 years. They've had a lot of exposure to people who are enemies, right, historically. And then think about their culture. Okay, they, they, they didn't blend in. And what did they tell other people about their God? Well, their God was superior to everybody else's, of course, and that's true, but it doesn't go down very well with other cultures. Plus, how does it feel if somebody tells you, well, I look at you as unclean? Ooh, that doesn't go over very well either. So, so you can see how the culture was one of animosity or enemy. They, they constantly felt attacked by enemies. But Jesus told the Pharisees, don't you see how your tradition cancels or nullifies God's word? And this is a perfect example. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Wait a minute. What's the logical question that comes out of that? Who is my neighbor? <laughs> Does that sound familiar? The lawyer asked that of Jesus. Who, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, who was an, part of the enemy race, but he showed kindness toward a, person, a Jewish person that was hurt on the side of the road. So Jesus is saying, look, you've heard this is, this is what was said. You've heard this is the conventional wisdom. But I say to you, and he turns the whole thing upside down, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word for love here is the Greek word agape, which means an unselfish, sacrificial love. I don't know if we really get or understand how radical it was for Jesus to say this in the culture that he was in. Of course, it's radical in our culture too. But one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he didn't just teach. He didn't just give platitudes because, you know, you can, you can hang on to this as a platitude, something that you say but you don't do. Jesus did it every day. And so I think it's really good to look at Jesus' life in respect to, well, did he do that? Did he love his enemies? Think about, and this is just a few. I mean, there's tons of these examples. Nicodemus, he was a ruler the class of rulers were the ones that were opposed to Jesus. They were the ones that were trying to undermine him. They were sort of the enemy. And he comes to Jesus at night. Okay, uh, he's embarrassed maybe to be seen with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He unpacks and unfolds some of the most deep and profound and beautiful truth anywhere in Jesus' teaching about the need to be born of the Spirit, to be born again. 
Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, and his daughter was dying. Mark 5, 21 through 43. And he comes to Jesus for help. Jesus immediately goes. <clears throat> he agrees to help him. And on the way, what happens? Somebody comes and says, sorry, but your daughter has died. Wouldn't that have been a good exit point for Jesus? I mean, this guy was, was another, another ruler. He was another per- person in that class of people that opposed Jesus. But no, Jesus pressed on and looked at Jairus and said, don't be afraid, only believe. And he goes to the house. He says, the girl's sleeping. She's not dead. The people jeered at him. They mocked him. So that tells you the atmosphere in Jairus' home. They mock Jesus. And he goes in the room and he raises her from the dead. How about the Roman centurion? Remember, it was the Jewish elders that asked Jesus on behalf of the Roman centurion to heal his servant. So that's one group of enemies asking another group of enemies for a favor from Jesus. These Romans were occupying their country. And he did it, and also, by the way, complimented the Roman centurion on his faith. How about the woman at the well? A cultural, the Samaritans were cultural enemies of the, of the Jews. And she's saying, oh, there's two strikes against me. I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman, and you're talking to me? Well, what did Jesus tell her? He told her something that he never told anybody else when in his ministry. He said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. He never said that in his, in, in his teaching to the Jewish people. So this outsider, he reveals in this incredible truth, she believes and goes back to her town to talk to people. But what about personal enemies? Did Jesus have any of those? How about Judas? Here's a guy who was with him for three years, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and somehow he resented Jesus. We don't know how, but somehow he resented him. How did Jesus treat Judas? Well, there's a pretty good indication at the Last Supper because Jesus gets troubled in spirit at the Last Supper and says, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Well, why didn't all the disciples at that point slowly turn and look at Judas? It's because Jesus didn't treat Judas any differently. He didn't treat him darkly, even though he knew he was about to do a terrible thing. What about Caiaphas? And I have Caiaphas and company, the whole group that conspired against Jesus and ultimately killed him. Well, Jesus experienced the venom I mean, the jealousy, the poison that was poured out on him. He was beaten. He's hanging on the cross. Did these guys feel bad? No. They're standing around jeering at him, mocking him. And what does he do in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this is the way that Jesus lived out his own teachings. So he says... Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. It isn't just Jesus that modeled this. The Father 
models this. Jesus is pointing to his goodness. He's pointing to his kindness. He's pointing to his love. Jesus says that we resemble the Father when we do things like this. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That when you love an enemy and do kind things for those that don't like you, or pray for someone that persecutes you, that it is a mark of your identity. It's a mark of your sonship, your daughtership, if that's a word. It is a mark of identity in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Well, there's a little problem, isn't there, with these ideas, these concepts that Jesus is putting out there. And he himself acknowledges this in the next verse. It isn't normal. (laughs) It isn't natural to love those who hate you. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't tax collectors do the same thing? Yep, it's natural for people to love those who love them. If you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same? Yeah, it's perfectly normal and natural to love those that love you, greet those that greet you. So what Jesus is telling us is it's not going to be natural. It's antithetical to our nature to love those that don't love us. We see Jesus did it. We see the Father does it. But what about us? How can we possibly do that? Well, he tells us what to do in the final verse of this passage. And frankly, on the surface, it looks like it's making things worse. What does he say at the end of this section? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Okay. How do I deal with that? What am I supposed to do with that statement? Well, we don't have... There are limitations in language, aren't there? And we don't really have an English word that expresses the content and the meaning of the Greek word that's in here. They're actually quite different. Okay, so when you, in, in, in English, when you say something is perfect, what do you mean? What do you think of? Well, the definition from Oxford, completely free from faults or defects or as close to such a condition as possible. In other words, don't make any mistakes. Be perfect. Do not make mistakes. The Greek concept is very different. Uh, The word teleos in the Greek is derived from the word telos, meaning the end, the limit, the fulfillment. And what I love about this Greek conception of perfection is that it has to do with maturity, really. It has to do with the fulfillment of purpose, the end, the end goal of who you are becoming. What are you and I becoming? A good example in one of the resources that I looked at this week was an apple. Okay? Let's take an apple. 
And let's say that this apple is at the peak of ripeness. It is as apple-y as it's ever going to get. And so it's ready to eat. If it goes any longer, it's going to start getting rotten. But this apple has a scab on it, and it's got a bunch of blemishes on the other side. Is that apple perfect? Well, if I'm in the grocery store and I see a big old scab on an apple, I'm going to say, oh, that's not a perfect apple. I'm going to take another one that doesn't have that. So our conception of that apple is that if it's got a scab, it's not perfect. The Greek conception, no, it has fulfilled all of its potential. It has become everything that it was meant to be. And the scabs are just part of it, part of what it is. And I think that's a really beautiful picture. So I'm going to give you an example from my own life of this concept. It's something really dumb that I did a couple weeks ago. Really dumb. I was on the phone. I had one phone call on my mobile. I had one phone call coming. I was working. <clears throat> one phone call, and another one came in, and I was trying to switch to the other phone call, and I dialed somebody else. Oh, wait a minute. I hung up, and then I went to the other call. Well, the next day, I got a call from that person, and that person happened to be an old friend, a really dear friend, and I felt bad. Like, I felt like I had really neglected that relationship a little bit, or a lot. <laughs> and so we had the best conversation. We were just talking, but toward the end, he said, hey, why'd you call me? And you know, in that split second, when you make dumb decisions in a split second, I thought, I'm going to hurt his feelings if I tell him the truth. Like, hey, this is all just a mistake. And so I pretended that I meant to call him. Well, later that day, this phone call starts coming to mind once, twice, three times. Finally, duh, I turned to the Lord and said, is there something that you need to say to me about this phone call? Because it keeps coming to mind. And, you know, and this is what Mark said at the beginning about the way the Holy Spirit works with us in such an amazing and gentle and wonderful way. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to heap condemnation on you for that horrible thing that you did. What happened to me was, in an instant, I had this incredible insight. First of all, I saw that I had lied. It was just, that's what, it is what it is. But then I saw that that lie, what it does is it created a vulnerability. I thought of like a hole on my blind side that was open, that I had created. I had created it by not telling the truth. I had created a hole and a vulnerability and a place of openness and a place where leverage could be used against me by the father of lies because that's his territory. And I was horrified to see that. And then, in the same instant, I saw that God had given me the ability to completely shut down that hole forever. It's up to me. I needed to call this person. I needed to apologize. I needed to confess what I did. So I did. And you know, I didn't die. <laughs> it wasn't the easiest thing, but I didn't die. 
And you know, as I was preparing this teaching afterwards, as I was reflecting on this, I didn't really connect the dots on this thing, but I realized, you know what? I believe that I am just a little bit stronger in Jesus than I was before. I think that by calling my friend and acknowledging and listening to the Holy Spirit and doing what he asked of me to do and what he showed me and what he revealed to me, that I am stronger than I was before. You know why? Because I saw the truth about lies. What they really are. I saw their true nature and it horrified me. And you know, I had all the rationalizations in the world and it just cut them down and showed me the truth. And that's going to stay with me. It was a little thing. It wasn't a big thing. But you know, this is the Greek idea, I think, of teleos. That we are moving toward fulfillment. Perfection doesn't mean that you and I don't make mistakes. It means that we decide that when we make mistakes, when, not if, when we make dumb mistakes, that we are willing, that we are connected to the Spirit, that we say, Lord, what do I need to do? How can you help me? How can you help me take this mistake and close it? And he will, and he does. And that strengthens us, and we become greater and greater in, our, in the distance that we're trying to cover to be more like Jesus. Perfect, it means that you and I are committed to becoming complete in Jesus, fulfilled, fulfilling his purposes. Jesus said to the woman at the well, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. That's the purposes that God has for you. And that's why I said it ties back to this idea of what we want to see here for all of us. It's about all of us. That we would take this seriously to fulfill the purposes and the plans. Not just in terms of our gifting, that's an important part of it, but in terms of our character, our character development. Wouldn't it be exciting to have this entire body taking it to the next level of what God wants to do in and through us as a body of believers. That, that excites me. That excites me because it isn't really about the leaders. It's about us. I'm going to close with this verse because Paul had this exact view of himself. He's talking about the resurrection in Philippians 3.11, and he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, obtained the resurrection, or have already become perfect. There's our word. But I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And if we had more time, we could get on another whole thing, and this is an incredible passage. But this is it. This is what Paul did. This is what we want to do. This is the, what we believe the Holy Spirit wants for us here together. This is where we're going. That we would be maturing in Jesus. That we would be exercising our gift. That you would say, you know what? 
I'm fulfilling the potential that God gave to me for the kingdom of God and for representing him on this planet. God wants to increase our capacity to bless. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for just the incredible privilege that we have to be a body together, to be walking together, to be loving one another, to be working together, Lord. May we take seriously the opportunity that you're handing to us to fulfill your purposes, Lord, to stir up the gifting that is within us, to work together for the betterment of your kingdom and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.